is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunbill, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to episode 12. Today we'll be speaking about Francis Eleanor Trollope's writing. Now I know usually we open writing episodes by discussing an author's process. We're not going to be able to do that today because frankly I've not found anything where she's spoken about her process and no one else has found anything either or looked into it particularly that I know of. But we can speak a bit around the context of her writing and of the piece that we're going to be reading today which is a chapter from The Fate of Fenella, the collaborative novel we mentioned last week. Yes, so in the introduction to The Fate of Fenella, um, the, to the, 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 <laughs> the Valancourt uh, edition of The Fate of Fenella, Andrew Maunder, uh writes about the culture of collaboration in the 1890s. Um, so I'm going to quote him here. He says, As a way of working, collaboration was intricately entwined with the late 19th century's changing attitude to authorship itself and the ways in which a writer could work. Collaboration could happen for various reasons. One author might take over from another in the event of illness or death. However, by the 1890s, there was also a belief that far from being a romantic solitary experience, the writing of fiction could be shared into a series of distinct tasks. And actually, I heard a really interesting presentation about this at um, the Victorian Popular Fiction Association conference this summer, so I'll see if I can maybe dig up my Twitter thread about that presentation and share it on the Victorian Scribbler's Twitter page. Um, one other thing that Andrew Maunder adds is um, he talks about the composition of The Fate of Fenella specifically and says, despite the fact that it was the, quote, product of high-profile writers, we have very little knowledge of how it was written. Few of the contributors refer to the work in their letters, and scant mention is made in biographies or memoirs. The exception is a 1905 biography by Winifred Stevens of her friend Adeline Sargent, who was one of the contributors. In the book, an old-fashioned piece of late Victorian hagiography, Stevens claims that, true to its publicity, the novel was indeed developed chapter by chapter, without any collaboration and any preconcerted plan. Yeah, and I think that's something that really comes through when you read it. There's a kind of feeling that every person in their chapter is trying to one-up the sensationalism of the last chapter. And I think the last time I checked, this ebook was on sale um, for two ninety nine instead of its usual four ninety nine. I don't know if that's still the case. Now I'm shilling for Amazon. What have I become? <laughs> but um, so if you're interested in picking up a copy of this edition, um, it's a good time to do that. Yeah, I've got the physical copy, and I have to say it's a really attractive book. It's got a really nice, very fantasy look cover. I really love. Um, most of their editions. I have one of um, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Thou Art the Man, and it has the yellow book, or the yellow back cover. Um, so it's the bright, uh, brightly colored, eye-catching cover that would have been, like, 
uh, at a railway station or something. So it's a cheaper edition, but the ones that are super hard to come by today because they look so cool. Yes, I love that. As I said earlier, we're going to bring you Francis's chapter from The Fate of Fenella. And it's the third of 24, so I feel like I can give you a rundown of the first two chapters without spoiling too much. So the first chapter is written by someone called Helen Mathers, and she begins by introducing Fenella French, which I'm not sure how to pronounce that because there are two Fs in French, so I don't know if it's kind of a French... An attractive young woman who has a charming son called Ronnie. They're staying in a resort town, and I don't believe that Mother's ever specifically names which town this is, or it might be one of those with a fictionalised name. I, When I was reading it, it made me think of Bath, because there's a bit of discussion of a pump room, which reminds me of Northanger Abbey and all of the pump room scenes in that. Mm-hmm. So at one point, Fenella is riding in a coach, sitting just behind the driver, or possibly next to the driver. I couldn't quite work it out. She's sitting by the driver who asks her if she would mind a gentleman sitting next to her. She initially agrees, but seems reluctant when she actually sees the man, who immediately recognises her, and she has immediately recognised him. He's Frank, or Lord Francis. And they discuss Ronnie, Fenella's son, for a while, and Frank seems rather concerned about him when he hears that Fenella has no nursery maid. Eventually, he asks her some quite interesting, seemingly leading questions. So he asks her what the people at the hotel think her situation is, why she's there alone with her child. And she explains that she uses her maiden name. He specifically asks her, what do they think your name is? And she says, Fenella French. She doesn't use the term maiden name, but she says, it's my own name. And tells people Mm. that she is a widow. So that's kind of the end of Mather's chapter. She set it up. I'm not that keen of Mather's descriptions because I I was really struck in the first sentence. Fenella has tan hair and tan eyes and tan skin by the sounds of it. It sounds like she's one colour. She's, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's been drawn by a kid who's lost all their other crayons. I did, I did kind of glimpse um, that initial description by Mathers, and she says, but the rest of her is all white, which was really kind of uh, startling. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Kind of jarring, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So the second chapter is written by an MP called Justin McCarthy, and he introduces Clithero Jacinth, a young lawyer, and his acquaintance Lord Castleton. Jason explains that he is in town to visit his sister and nephew and it quickly becomes clear that Jason is infatuated with Fenella. He asks to speak to her when she returns to the hotel, saying that it concerns Ronnie, which alarms her. But it turns out Jason actually wants to declare his love to her and proposes, which actually has the opposite to the desired effect, with Fenella declaring that not only will she not marry him, but she can no longer be friends with him. Lord Castleton, who has been somewhere in the background for this time, reappears and tells Jacinth that there is a great deal he can tell him about Fenella. And that's where chapter two finishes, and we start Francis Eleanor Trollope's chapter. Yes, so without further ado. Chapter three. How it strikes a contemporary. 
by Frances Eleanor Trollope. But this case is so plain that nothing can obscure it but to use too many words about it. Jeremy Taylor Lord Castleton, doubtless, did not literally believe that he could tell his friend all about that woman. But he probably was possessed with the conviction that when he should have said what he had to say, there would remain little more worth telling. We smile with a kind of fatigued contempt at the venerable classical joke of the fool who, wishing to sell his house, carried about a brick from it as a specimen. We know better how to judge of houses. But we are willing, sometimes, to pick off a very small fragment of human life and to exclaim knowingly, look here, I'll tell you what it is made of. Lord Castleton's well-meant offer was not received with gratitude. "'What woman?' growled Jacinth, taking one hand out of his pocket to tilt his hat a little more over his eyes. "'Why, Mrs. Miss Lady, by Jove, I scarcely know what to call her.' "'That's a good beginning,' said Jacinth, sardonically. "'No, no, my dear fellow, I really do know all about her, only it's—' It's a little puzzling where to begin. Why begin? The fat little gentleman reddened and frowned. Then his good nature and his sense of obligation to the other man, and his pity for him, which perhaps rendered the sense of obligation easier to bear, conquered the momentary irritation. The fact is, Jacinth, he said, I consider it my duty to tell you the story of Fenella French. No one knows it better than I do. You may hear it told by a score of men in town who will be a deuce deal harder on the girl than I am. I have no animosity against her, poor little fool. None in the world. In fact, I rather like her. Very gratifying to the lady, but, excuse me, not of palpitating interest to me. Goodbye. I think I shall go for a long spin. Stop a moment, Dracinth. Did you never hear of Lady Frances Onslow? Jacinth turned round sharply and looked at him. Lady Frances Onslow, he repeated, putting his hand to his forehead and looking as though he were trying to recall some half-effaced recollections. Lady Frances Onslow. She was a daughter of Colonel Fortescue French, of Crimean celebrity, and she married Frank Onslow when she was only seventeen, and three years afterwards they were separated. Is that the woman? That is the woman. She looks such a child. I told you, she was married when she was only seventeen. But he, Lord Francis, he is alive? Very much so. At least, he looked alive enough when I saw him about half an hour ago. He is here? Yes. Look here, Jacinth. Just let us take a turn somewhere. Here, this is a quiet path, and... No, not there. 
said Jacinth, drawing back roughly as Lord Castleton laid his hand on his arm. It was the pathway where he had just been speaking with Fenella. I don't know why I should listen to you at all. What does it matter? Nothing you can say will do any good. Nevertheless, he did listen. What man would not have listened? That he should believe it when it was told was another matter. Jacinth was a clever man, a man of brilliant talents and rising reputation in his profession. He had also certain special gifts which were not so generally recognized. He had a keen and almost intuitive insight into character, and a steady power of incredulity as to a vast proportion of the stories circulated in the best society on the best authority. At first sight, this may seem no very extraordinary power. And perhaps it is not extraordinary, but it is certainly not common. The gossip of the smoking room, the tittle-tattle of the clubs, penetrate, as a fine drizzling rain penetrates one's clothing, into the consciousness of most men. Men may declare that they give no heed to that sort of gossip, but, as a rule, their minds are porous and do not resist it. With persons who pride themselves on knowing the world, credulity has almost come to signify believing good of men's neighbors. But Jacinth had often been cynically amused by the childish credulity with which a knot of men at his club would swallow evil stories, intrinsically improbable and supported by no tittle of evidence that he would have dared to offer to the least enlightened of juries, merely because they were evil. For these gentlemen knew the world. Something he dimly remembered hearing of the separation which had taken place between Lord and Lady Francis Onslow, but nothing clearly. He had not lived in their world. He did not now live in it. He had a poor opinion of Lord Castleton's intellect, but he believed him to be as truthful as he knew how to be. Jacinth was quite capable of disbelieving a story against a woman, even though she were young, beautiful, full of impulsive high spirit, and separated from her husband, and even though he had not happened to be in love with her. He did not intend to break a lance on her behalf. He was not given to such breaking of lances, for he also knew the world. But neither was he going to accept Lord Castleton's statements with the undoubting faith that Lord Castleton seemed to expect. Nevertheless, he listened. She was an only child, you know, said Lord Castleton, hooking himself on his companion's arm so as to speak confidentially in his ear as they walked up and down. Idolized by her father. Her mother died when she was a small child, so she was left to take pretty much her own way ever since she was six years old. French got some old woman or other to look after her as she grew older, a kind of duenna, you know. But as to controlling her, it was a mere farce. Fenella did as she pleased with the colonel, and the colonel did as he pleased with everybody else, for he was a tartar, and never allowed any member of his household to contradict him, always with the one exception, you know. And so the end of it was that every man, woman, and child about the place had to be Miss Fenella's very humble servant, or had to go. She was the wildest little beggar, used to go tearing about the country on a little Arab horse she had. Once she took it into her head to ride to hounds, and by George, sir, she went flying over everything that came in her way, and was in at the death, the only woman there. Just think of that. A child, not fifteen, riding the hounds quite alone, for the old groom who used to trot about after her could no more keep up with her than if he had been mounted on a tortoise. 
A vision of the slight, straight, fearless young creature, with a wave of tawny hair floating behind her, the wonderful hazel eyes shining, and the delicate cheeks glowing like roses, came vividly before Mr. Jacinth's mind as he listened. I know that story's true, continued Castleton. Old Lord Furzeby, who was master at that time and had been hunting the county for twenty years, told me it himself, and he said he'd never seen anything like it. However, he called next day on her father, and then French did put a stop to the hunting. He wouldn't quite stand that. Well, said Jacinth, after a pause. Well, that's just a specimen of the way she was brought up. But there were worse things than the hunting. A juiced sight. What things? growled Jacinth, flashing a dark side glance at his companion's round, rubicund face. I, upon my soul, I think they may be all summed up in one word, flirtation. Of all the outrageous, audacious, insatiable little flirts that ever were born for the botheration of mankind, I suppose Vanilla French is about the completest specimen. Poor mankind, sneered Jacinth, drawing down the corners of his mouth. My dear fellow, she began when she was in short frocks. I've no doubt the man where she bought her hoops and dolls was in love with her, and when she began to grow up, it was a general massacre. Not of the innocents, however, muttered Jacinth. French's place was in Hampshire, not quite out of reach by a drive from Portsmouth, although it was a long pool by road. And before she was sixteen, Fenella had bowled over the whole garrison. I believe the local chemist expected a wholesale order for prussic acid the day her engagement to Frank Onslow was announced. Said his fat little lordship, chuckling at his own wit. Where did she meet him? At a garrison ball in Portsmouth. It was supposed to be a case of love at first sight. Regular Romeo and Juliet business, don't you know? Oh, she loved him said Jacinth, between his set teeth. God knows. She said she did, anyway, and made him believe it. As for him, he was desperately mashed. And so, and so they married, but didn't live happily ever after. No, by George, it didn't last long. For the first year or two, it was all billing and cooing. They took a little place in Surrey and gave themselves up to rurality and domestic affection. Old French used to spend half his time there with them, and when Fenella's boy was born, they had a story that the colonel was seen wheeling a perambulator about the garden and administering a feeding bottle. It did seem as though Fenella had begun to put a good deal of water in her wine, as the Italians say. They hadn't been married three years when Colonel French died suddenly. I was not in England at the time. I was in a very low state, all to pieces. In fact, Sir Abel Adamson has since confessed that he thought my nervous system... However, that will probably not interest you. I set off on a long sea voyage, which they said was my best chance. And in point of fact, I prowled about for more than a year and a half. It was in Japan that I got a hold of an old times with the announcement of French's death. Oh-ho, I thought I to myself. My Lady Frances Onslow will come in for a nice little pile. She had something when she married, and, of course, French left her everything he had in the world. Then Lord Francis Onslow hadn't made a bad thing of it? A very good thing of it, from the financial point of view, that is. He was a duke's son, but I needn't tell you that a duke's fifth son. Can't expect to marry a lady from Chicago or New York with millions of dollars in pigs or petroleum. Of course not. That's reserved for his seniors, said Jacinth. Lord Castleton laughed, but he did not quite like this little speech. 
he considered himself the least bumptious of men about his rank. But there was something in Jacinth's words, a twang, not only of bitterness, but of contempt, which Lord Castleton inwardly pronounced to be bad form. But Jacinth was sore, poor wretch, terribly sore. However, his lordship compressed his narrative somewhat, as being very doubtful what venomed criticism might be lurking in the barrister's mind. Well, the main point of the story is what happened after the colonel's death, and when Frank Onslow and his wife went up to town. Only, I thought it well to give you a glimpse of the madcap sort of life the girl had been allowed to lead, because it, to some degree, explains a good deal of her reckless way of carrying on. Lord Castleton fancied he heard Jacinth mutter under his breath, Poor child but the clean-shaven, firmly-molded jaw looked set and grim when he glanced at it, in a countenance less expressive of any compunctious visitings of sentiment than the countenance of Clitheroe Jacinth, barrister at law, as it appeared in that moment, it would be difficult to imagine. Lady Frances made one of the biggest sensations I could remember when she began to get into the swing of London society. She had been presented on her marriage, of course, but then Frank had carried her off to the cottage in Surrey, and the world had seen no more of her, so that now she appeared as a novelty. And she is, well, you know what she is to look at. I know dozens of women handsomer by line and rule, but there's something fetching about Fenella that I never saw equalled. And then the old game began again. Fellows were mad about her, and she flirted in the wildest way. The Romeo and Juliet passion having meanwhile died a natural death said Jacinth, staring straight before him. Oh, I suppose so. The fact is, she's a butterfly kind of creature that no man ought ever to have taken seriously. And the husband? Frank was. Well, the fact is, Frank acted like a fool. He was very young too, you know. They were like a couple of children together, and used to squabble and kiss and make it up like children. Frank never had the least suspicion of jealousy about her, though. Never. Until... Exactly exclaimed Jacinth, with a nod of the head. Well, whether his aunt, old Lady Grizzle, put it into his head, or whether he saw something for himself that he didn't like, the fact is, Frank made a scene one night when they came home from a ball at the Austrian embassy, and Fenella, who is the Tartar's own daughter when she's roused, I can tell you, dynamite isn't in it, flared up tremendously, and there was, in short, the devil to pay. Fenella, it seems, had been secretly bottling up a little private jealousy on her own part. There was a certain Madame, her name don't matter, and she has returned to Mongolia or wherever she came from long ago. A certain woman, pretty near old enough to be Frank's mother, but a fascinating sort of Jezebel, whom you met about everywhere that season. And Fenella turned round and declared that Frank had been making her miserable by his goings-on with that vile woman. All her foolish fancy, of course, said Jacinth, suddenly looking at the other man with a penetrating gaze from beneath his frowning black brows. Oh, well, you know, oh, I dare say Frank had to some extent been making an ass of himself. But of course, the case was totally different. Oh, of course. Vanella talked like a wild Indian, you know. It couldn't be supposed that because Lord Francis Onslow kicked up his heels rather more than was exactly pretty, Lady Francis Onslow was to be allowed to follow suit. He had taken exception to a certain man, military attaché to one of the embassies, and forbade Fenella to dance with him or receive him in her drawing room. Needless to say, the Fenella made a point of waltzing with him in the next night, and of giving him a standing invitation to five o'clock tea. More rows, family consultations, Aunt Grizzle volunteering as peacemaker. I think that was the last straw. Fenella insisted on a separation. She was as obstinate as possible. She would take her boy and leave him. 
asks the money, he might keep it all, and that sort of wild nonsense. But she carried her point. She left him. How was it possible that he let her go? My dear friend, the idea of talking of letting or not letting Fenella Onzo do anything she had set her will on is refreshingly naive. She threatened them that if they did not consent to an amicable arrangement, she would bring legal proceedings, on account of the Mongolian fascinator, and make a scandal. Well, the Onslows hate the name of scandal as a mad dog hates water. Or as a burnt child dreads the fire, put in Jacinth. At any rate, among them they cobbled up the deed of separation, and there is poor Frank with a wife and no wife, and the boy, he was devoted to the little chap, taken away from him at any rate for some years. And there is Lady Frances Onslow with a husband and no husband. Upon my soul, I believe she's happier without him. Upon my soul, I do. All she cares for in life is to flirt, to decoy some wretched fellow into a desperate state about her, and then to turn him off with an impudent little assumption of innocence and declare she meant nothing. People said there was more in the affair of the military attaché than her usual coquetries. But I don't know. I don't believe she has it in her power to care for any man. However, very few of those who saw the little drama being acted before their eyes take a lenient view of Fenella's conduct. I felt bound to open your eyes, Jacinth. The woman is as dangerous as a rattlesnake. Of course, she's gone and made a hideous hash of her own life, but she has done worse than that to other people's lives, and she'll go on doing it. I saw her just now sitting up on the box seat of the coach, beside her husband, and... Beside whom? Beside her husband, Frank Onslow. There's nothing she hasn't impudence enough for. It wouldn't surprise me if they were to come together again. And that, said Jacinth, walking away by himself, is what Castleton calls telling me all about that woman. I don't know whom she loves, nor whether she loves anyone at this present moment. But that there are depths of feeling in the girl of which old Castleton is about as well able to judge as a mole of the solar system. But what's the good of it? I have played my stake and lost it. I... I must get out of this place if I'm to keep any hold over myself at all. How could a raw lad like Frank Onslow value her or understand her? Of course, he was selfish and unreasonable and dull to all the finer part of her nature, like a boy as he is, or was at any rate, when he married her. He went up to his room and dragged out a portmanteau. He must get away. There was no use in parleying or delay. Flight, instant flight, was the only thing for him. But when he had opened the portmanteau and dragged out a few clothes from the chest of drawers, he sat down by the bedside and buried his face in the pillow. I love her, I love her, he moaned out, and then he hated himself for his folly. At this moment, a little childish footstep was heard tramping up the stairs. Tap, 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 climbing up with much exertion, but with eager haste. And then a sweet little childish voice said, Mr. Jacinth. Mr. Jason, for you there. Dacinth opened the door with a wildly beating heart. Could she have sent him with a message? What is it, Ronnie, my man? He said, looking down upon the child's curly, tawny hair and bright, innocent, hazel eyes that were so like his mother's. Hello, cried Ronnie, surveying the portmanteau and the litter of clothes on the floor. Are you going away? Yes, old boy. Is Grandison going too? No, not Grandison. What do you want, Ronnie? I want you not to go. I want you not to go away. Anything else? Yes, 
why can't you come with us if you are going away? Come with you? Where? With me and Mummy. Mummy says we shall go to a nicer place than this, and I may play cricket. I wanted you to come and play with me and Granderson. But I suppose you can't if you're packing your clothes. Ain't they in a jolly mess? Jason lifted the child up in his arms and kissed him. Goodbye, Ronnie, he said in a queer choking voice. And then he set the little fellow outside the door and shut it. Ronnie prepared to make the descent of the staircase, holding tight to the banisters. He put one little chubby finger up to his cheek and looked at it. Hello, said he very gravely. My face is all wet. So that concludes the chapter. That is the end of the chapter. So interesting. I couldn't resist giving Ronnie a really weird voice. That was great. Yeah, I think you you mentioned like how to pronounce this double F last name, and I just want to be like French, like really draw out the the, the Fs. It seems really kind of like a parody. Yeah, I. I can't figure out why mothers give the double F. Yeah, I don't know, cause, but like everyone in the family, or like her, her father and herself both have um, alliterative names. I was going to say, yeah, because it's Frances that first um, that names her father Fortescue. So she's clearly kind of picked up the ball and run with it. So she's she's very on board with this almost running joke is what it feels like to me and I think her names in general are just great, the things that she comes up with Aunt Grizzle as well uh huh yeah, I'm trying to remember what what Jason's name is Klimth? Clithero Clithero which is okay. really strange um yeah. So Clithero is a small town in Lancashire. So I don't um, I don't know if it would have been a name before that, but interesting. The you know, the plot of this chapter is really uh just gossip, like two men trading gossip and then one of them getting very sad. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is partly, you know, down to the nature of the novel that it's collaborative and you don't actually have that much backstory so in the previous chapters you've seen Fenella and Frank meeting and it's it's pretty obvious that they're that Frank is Ronnie's dad but there's no backstory about anything else that happened hmm. and the chapter before does end with 
kind of means that Francis can only go one way because it says that Castleton is going to tell Jason everything that happens. So she kind of is set up to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're clearly still in the exposition stages of just kind of like setting up the world and the key players. Yeah, absolutely. What I think is really interesting about this chapter and ties back to something I said a couple of weeks ago is that you really get the sense that it's not clear which of these characters you're supposed to relate to. If you're supposed to relate to Lord Castleton saying all these awful things about um, Fenella and blaming it only on her. I mean, it's clear that Jason is saying this partly because he's in love with her or infatuated with her, Mm -hmm. but also he's making some good points. Why are we saying this is all Fenella's fault? Yeah, he is really drawing attention to the double standard at play. And this is something that we you do find in a lot of her fiction. There are hmm. there are characters that are certainly the voice of kind of oppressive gender politics, but there's also characters that are questioning that. They interestingly it does tend to be men that are in love with the heroine who's being stereotyped. But it is a running theme of there's someone there saying, but why are we only talking about the things that she does wrong? That's such a, an interesting move and really does at least force the reader to think about those questions. There's other things as well, like when um, when Jason says some not especially complimentary things about the upper classes and Castleton is horrified that he would say mm-hmm. that and doesn't know how to react. It's just elements that are somewhat surprising if you go in there thinking she's this conservative anti-feminist yeah i felt like this chapter was a really good illustration of what i was saying last week with with regards to this yeah i wonder then maybe you can answer this um so what genres does she tend to write in normally because it seems like the sensation genre might require her to characterize um people in a more uh progressive way just because of the nature of the, the the content that usually appears in these kinds of novels yeah. And the other example I was talking about, Veronica, really is a sensation novel. It's got all of the murder and plotting that you would want. Yeah, this story ends up being a sensation novel, partly because everyone, as I said, is trying to be more controversial than the last. But some of her fiction is more, if I had to put a genre on it, I would say it's trying to be realist in the style of Dickens, because it's published in all the year round so she seems Mm -hmm. to go between the two genres interesting i think those i think those i think genres actually end up authors end up working in those two genres they have more in common than we like to admit sometimes that's exactly what i was trying to say at the same time (laughs) yeah there's um what am i thinking of there's this great article by pamela gilbert and it might be in um beyond the Beyond Sensation, which is a collection of essays about Mary Elizabeth Braddon's work. Um, But she talks about the way in which we've classified Braddon particularly as a sensation writer, but she was writing in all of these different modes, and in fact the modes blend um, in in lots of ways, some that you might expect and others that you might not. Yeah. I can put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, and I think that's a really gendered kind of thing where 
sensation novels, if not written by a woman, the primary target is women. And so we're going to say it's all hysterical and um, controversial, not controversial, shocking. Whereas realist fiction, maybe if it's not written by a man, then the audience is kind of not explicitly gendered. I mean, the audience for all the year round isn't really explicitly gendered. Hmm. So it affects how we see it and how we interpret the similarities and differences. It's a very kind of embryonic thought, but mm-hmm. I do think sensation, because it's... And people have definitely said this better, but because it's gendered as a female kind of genre, it gets this rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you think about it, like, detective fiction which really comes out of sensation fiction, but is much more um, male gendered um, is, you know, it's got the same sort of sensational elements, but just with a, a, a more um, emphasis on the rational elements that would already appear in something like, um, like the woman in white, like the detective elements or even the moonstone. So, th- so the investigatory, rationative elements are already there in sensation fiction, but they get more acclaim in detective fiction. Yeah, like um, Lady Audley's Secret, the guy whose mm-hmm. name I've forgotten. Yeah, it's Robert Audley. Robert, yes. So he's a really early example of a detective, but people aren't focusing on Robert's thinking. They're going, oh, but look at this crazy Lady Audley who's setting, trying to set places on fire and push people down wells. Mm-hmm. But even her um, madness, quote unquote, is really rational. Like she covers her tracks like an expert. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, that's well. I mean, that's another one where it depends how you read it. Because if you read it in a certain way, I, I can imagine a lot of a lot of people, especially at the time, would read it and think, "Oh, this is terrible what she's done." But then you think about her situation and. It becomes understandable, and that's what I think Frances Eleanor Trollope does really well. Is if you're a receptive reader, willing to do it, she will make you think about both sides of the coin. Really good skill to have as a writer. I think it makes, um, I think it makes narratives more interesting for sure. At least you know, just one of the great things about fiction is that you get to see things from other people's perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Where would you suggest people start if you want, if they wanted to read um, some of her work that's not collaborative necessarily? I would, yeah, I was thinking about this. I would possibly say start at the beginning and her first piece of published fiction is a novella called Aunt Margaret's Trouble. So it was published across, I think it's either four or six parts of all the year round. So it's relatively short. It's very accessible. I mean, it's a, another one where it's a good introduction to this idea of looking at different people's lives because it's this Aunt Margaret, who is now elderly, telling the story of her youth and her lost love in her youth and her relationship with her sister, which is really interesting. Hmm. And it's a really interesting example as well of her kind of 
tailoring the way she writes for the context because there's obviously it's published in Dickens's periodical and there's a lot of very Dickensy elements like a lot of I dialect interesting I was going to stress though you know that kind of time of year is coming up she does have which I've not personally read myself yet but there's a Christmas story that she wrote hmm But yeah, I would say that Aunt Margaret's Trouble is a good introduction because obviously it's short and accessible in that in that sense. I mean, you can even read it as the original readers would have a piece a part at a time, and that's usually about six pages, four to six pages, in all the year round. So it's not much at all. I'm very proud of these. Um, projects to read things as they would have been serialized because mm. it just seems so much more manageable yes yeah so that would be available at like the dickens journal website probably yeah dickens journal online have it absolutely okay so i think that's all we have for you this time we'll be back next month with a christmas episode um the trollop who stole christmas so tune in for that yes thank you and tune in for the final trollop next time Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me, with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, by Mr. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the Ball!